This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, where we are joyfully sleeping with the fishman as we make our long-awaited return to the Oscar vault. Uh, we fell down on the job a little bit, but we're finally making our way back to the best score Oscar for the year of 2017. And with me, as always, in the Oscar vault is my brother, Mr. Scott Butler. Scott, are you ready to go back into the Oscars? Not really. Cool. Can't wait. You may not be very enthusiastic, but now that it's Oscar season, it is incumbent upon us to complete the work of assessing the nominees and the winner from 2017 before we move on to the nominees and eventual winner for 2018. So let's get started with the score from Phantom Thread by Johnny Greenwood. Do we have to? Scott, remember in our second annual Oscar preview when we were talking about Jackie and I said that it was supposed to be alienating? (laughs) Guess what this is supposed to be? I have no earthly idea what any of this is supposed to be. Johnny Greenwood comes to us from Radiohead and can't you feel the rock sensibility? Really? Yes. He's the guitarist for Radiohead. Really? Yes. I can't say that I'm intimately familiar with their body of work, but aren't they like a rock band? Yes. Uh, may- maybe alternative rock? I don't I don't know rock genres. Well, like, are they rockin'? Sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> well, are they like rockin' rock, or are they that, like... Emo, 90s, I'm too sad to play guitar rock. Sometimes. I haven't... I I haven't kept up with them very much since the mid-2000s, but, you know, they caught me at a time in my life when I was very uh, emo and also unable to play the guitar, so... Because, I mean, there's been other rock performers who show up scoring movies. Danny Elfman has had a long and storied career. 
post-Oingo Boingo? Uh, I would say so, yes. Trent Reznor has done movies. Trent Reznor is an Academy Award winner. Yes, he is. Although, you know, given the trends of this award in recent years, maybe this shit could win an award. I'll give him this. There does appear to be a theme in this dross. However, the theme only appears in tracks that are named Phantom Thread. I feel that's a limiting factor. What, just because the tracks that happen to feature the theme have a certain title? Because the theme is limited only to tracks that have the same name as the film. I mean, that's an artistic choice that sometimes people make when they're putting together an album. It would, sure. be, it would be like if the Star Wars theme never appeared in the movie except in tracks called Star Wars. I feel that would be limiting. That seems irrelevant to me. That's just a choice that someone makes when they're putting together an album as to what to call the tracks. You know, in, no, in, in, it's, a instead choice, of... it's a choice someone makes when putting together a score. That I'm going to use the theme in this one spot, and this two spot, and this three spot, and this four spot, and nowhere else. It detracts from the usability of a theme, it detracts from the listenability of a theme, it detracts from the utility of the theme. It detracts from the enjoyment of the theme, because half the point of the theme is that it's used in so many different ways in so many different places to mean so many different things. Here's the happy version, here's the sad version, here's the exciting version, here's the action version, here's the tense version, here's the worried version. Here's the version that makes you excited for what's coming up next. Here's the version that helps you express your excitement for what just happened. Here's the version that makes you tense up because something bad is about to happen. You don't get that when you use the theme once, twice, thrice, fourths. Never again. I'm not sure exactly what the flow of this film is like, but listening to the score, it seems to be extremely austere, extremely standoffish, Yes, and the score seems to exist to reinforce that impression. It's, 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 a, little, it's a little monochromatic. I reached a revelation listening to this score. Did you? I'll share with you a uh, a little bit of my notes, because I have notes. G- good for you. Because I don't just show up here and you name a movie and I'm like, huh, bet that movie had a score. I wonder what I could say about it. No, I prepare for these things. I've listened to this score before. You put the work in. And I listened to the score and I made notes while I was listening to it, and I will share with you and our audience a little snippet from my notes on this score. That's kind of what we're here for. Uh, I made the note on track four. I made the, this is right from my notes, sort of talking to myself in my notes in a desperate attempt to like have something to occupy my mind while this empty dross was playing in my headphones. I think I'm turning over a new leaf with these things. I'm not going to force myself to listen to these so closely. If it doesn't grab me, then that's my review. It didn't grab me. It's not my job to make myself pay attention to your music. It's your job to make me pay attention to this music. That's one way to go about assessing something, for sure. Like, if I have to restart a track three times because your music is so empty and vacuous that my mind keeps wandering off to other things, and so I forget anything that I've just heard for the last five minutes, that's a problem with the music. That's not a problem with my listening. You know, I can see the function of the music. I can see how it is functional. But just like the premise 
of a film about struggling genius Daniel Day-Lewis and his twisted interpersonal relationships. I'm sure it's all expertly made and structured and all that, but the premise is so worn out and and I was the... about to say. <laughs> yes. What a, what a unique and original premise to make a film about struggling male genius and his twisted interpersonal relationships. I know, I know. Even just twisted, struggling genius Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> a film by Paul Thomas Anderson. Thomas? 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 Did Thomas put in your bathroom? <laughs> so, that premise for a film and that function of a score is so worn out for me personally that it is hard to stay engaged. Like, it's expertly written, it's expertly made, but the whole premise of it appeals much less to me. Like, I saw There Will Be Blood. It was expertly made, Daniel Day-Lewis was excellent, I got nothing from the movie. (laughs) I saw The Master. It was expertly made. Philip Seymour Hoffman was perfect. I got nothing from the movie. And so trying to evaluate the score for Phantom Thread... I'm sure it fulfills its purpose, but I think maybe we can be past this. Would you like to move past this? Yes, let's move past this. Okay. What are we moving past this to? Uh, well, let's move on to the score, if you want to call it that, for the movie film for theaters, Dunkirk by Hans Zimmer. I changed my mind. I don't want to move on from this. talking about Jackie last time and I said it was supposed to be alienating? This isn't alienating. This is nothing. This is literally nothing. Okay, I, I kind of wish we'd done these in different orders now, but I'm skipping right to the money shot. I'm giving you my top three notes from Dunkirk. Oh, no, oh dear. My number one note from Dunkirk comes from track three when I wrote, Is this score meant to make me empathize with the soldiers? Because it's only track three, and I already want nothing more than for this to be over. My second note comes from track eight, when I wrote down, Hmm, never would have thought to score a World War II movie with amelodic chiptunes, but then I'm not musical genius Hans Zimmer. You sure aren't. Did you have a third one? My note number three for this movie comes from track 10, when I made the note, Holy shit, is this a melody? Addendum, I was later informed by Glenn, that's actually an Edward Elger melody that Zimmer just sort of stuck in there. 
It's not actually a Zimmer melody. There are no melodies in anything Zimmer wrote. Right. When they wanted to inject some nobility and some melody toward the end of the film, they went to an Edward Elgar piece uh, that's integrated into a couple of tracks. May I just reiterate that in the penultimate track of this entire score, I was shocked and amazed that there was finally a little bit of a hint of a melody. Well, there's a whole career progression for Hans Zimmer, right? And it feels like Dunkirk is sort of an end point. You know, it, it, it's a paradigm shift even from the style of Inception. It, it's the end point of the melodic degradation of Zimmer's DC scores. An apotheosis of score turned into pure sound design. And as sound design, again, it's perfectly functional. I actually saw this one. Did it, you? Yes. And the How was the viewing experience enhanced by this musical score? Well, I must say that during my viewing of this movie film for theaters, I was a little uncomfortable. <laughs> really? Which is exactly how Christopher Nolan wanted me to feel. So, you see what I mean when I say that it's perfectly functional. It highlights tension, alienation. It's functional sound design. Yes, it's incredibly functional sound design. It's not nominated for best sound design. It's nominated for best score. Well, it's sound design done with musical elements. I made this note as well. At one point, I wrote down... This is less discordant than Jackie, but just as tuneless. And then my next note was musing to myself, you know, before the 20th century, this would not have been considered music. Like, before all that avant-garde stuff, before, like, 433, you know, before 10 people on the stage with radios, tuning the radio to various dials and whatever city they're in, they have produce a different sound because the radio reception is different, and they call that a symphony. Before all of that bullshit came in in the 20th century, this would not have been called music. It would have been called noise. I think that's less bullshit and more an exploration of the edges of what we mean when we say music, which I think is a natural progression of recording technology and the progression of Western music norms. I, I don't think you can just throw out the avant-garde completely. Now, in terms of what you prefer to hear on an album or in a movie, sure. I mean, as a listening experience, it's not altogether pleasant. I honestly, I'm stuck on that thought now. Every time I listen to this, I just listen to it and I go, there is an argument that is easily made that this is not music anymore. Not only is there not a theme, there's no melody, there's no tune. There's no pattern to the notes whatsoever. There's quite a lot of rhythm. In places, there's more lack of rhythm than rhythm. There are repeated rhythmic progressions. And how much of a repeated rhythmic progression do you need to call something a motif or a theme? There's rhythm the same way there's rhythm in a drum roll. But a drum roll doesn't have musicality to it. It's just sounds in a pattern. 
It's a pattern of sounds that you literally make with a musical instrument. But there's no notes! How do you call it a musical composition when there's, like, just... It is... It's it's a lot more structured than I think you're giving it credit for. It's not just total random garbage. It's meticulously structured random garbage. If by structure you mean each bit was specifically chosen to be that way, yes. If by structure you mean it holds together as a coherent whole, then no. What do you mean when you say it's not coherent? I mean... It's like a Jackson Pollock painting. You could call a Jackson Pollock painting art. Because it is made with artistic something. And you could call this score a form of art. But you would not call a Jackson Pollock painting a portrait. You would not call it a landscape. You would not call it a still life. And you can't call this a musical composition. See, that's a hard comparison for me because I think Pollock and avant-garde music that you were talking about a few minutes ago, those things are intentionally exploring the edges of what we consider to be in their respective artistic genres. This score, any score really, has a much more utilitarian purpose. It is supporting the perceived needs of a film, and... I think you hit the nail on the head earlier when you called it sound design. Oh, it's absolutely sound design. Well, just because something is art doesn't mean it's a particular type of art. Just because something is sound art, audio art, whatever you want to call it, doesn't mean it's a particular type of audio art form. Just because something is a graphical art product doesn't make it a portrait or a landscape or whatever. And just because this is a deliberately constructed audio artistic composition doesn't make it a musical competition. Composition. We're talking about the Oscars. This is literally a musical competition. And that's why this should be disqualified. I mean, I guess Zimmer sort of has, you know, he's sort of gaming the system in a way, right? If the Oscars disqualify things for using themes from previous compositions, well, one way to do that is to never have a melody anywhere in your work! You know, time was this would have been disqualified because of the Edward Elgar quotation. (laughs) Possibly. Depending on who's enforcing the rules at any given moment. Time was nobody would give this the second half of a first thought. Because it is such a melodic dreck. I mean, when the nominees for any given year included, like, a Williams score, and a Goldsmith score, and a James Horner score, and a Howard Shore score, and a Basil Polidorus score, no one would have given this a second thought. You know, I used to attribute Zimmer's alienation from thematic writing to a kind of writer's block that he parlayed into a methodological shift through sheer charisma. But it's not like this isn't deliberate. No, this is very deliberate. This is... Have you seen, like, documentaries and videos and stuff of the creative process? Oh, yeah, there was one that was uh, going around a lot when the film was in theaters about the uh, audio illusion that Zimmer uses to create the impression of an eternally rising uh, melodic line, for lack of a better phrase. I mean, he's literally not writing a melody. 
He's composing to the film each individual note. It's not, should this note be this note as part of the melodic phrase, or should I adjust it to make a different melodic phrase? It's just, this instant of film needs an A note instead of a C note. And it has nothing to do with any notes that came before or any notes that came after. It's just, how does this particular moment of sound affect this particular moment of film? That's why I say it would be much more accurate to call it sound design and not a musical score. Well, it may also bolster your point to consider that the score is pretty omnipresent in the film. Like, there, are, there aren't a whole lot of breaks from it, really. So, it really is mimicking the oppressive force of your impending death in battle? Like I theorized, the score is there to make me empathize with the soldiers? The score is there to make you feel a sense of panic. You know, that's why there are literally alert klaxons in several tracks. Oh, is that the stuff that I thought was chiptunes? Quite possibly. Well, and the ticking clocks, right? Yeah, exactly! How can you call this a musical score when there's so many fucking sound effects in it? I mean, you can use a ticking clock in lots of music as a rhythmic device. Yes, but to use a ticking clock in music, first you have to start with music! This is going to be awesome every time we talk about a Zimmer score, huh? What, is he nominated again? <sighs> Probably going to be. Not, not, not this year, but you know. Well, now that he's retired from superhero movies, he's doing nothing but Oscar bait? Yeah, exactly. Shall we move on from this morass into something a little more pleasant? Are you sure it's something more pleasant? Because the last time you asked me that question, it was a dirty trick! I think our next score is altogether more pleasant. That is Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri by Carter Burwell. time we were talking about Carter Burwell was when Carol was nominated for the Oscar, which is a much different score to this. Yeah, Carol is more of a stereotypical Carter Burwell score. Really? Because this score is very, very identifiably Burwell. In ways, but I mean, Carol is right up there with, like, you know, the Spanish prisoner and being John Malkovich. I mean, they all have the same things in common that make them Carter Burwell scores that this movie sort of not altogether lax, but it's sort of twisted a different way. Like, this movie doesn't sound like Carter Burwell so much from the melody, but a lot of the instrumentation is very identifiably Burwell. Yeah, the acoustic guitar, the concentration on a, on a smaller string ensemble. Actually, with the acoustic guitar, it sounds a lot like some of his scores for the Coen brothers. I know a lot of people were talking about an influence from uh, Fargo in particular. Scott's featured note from this movie comes from track six when I wrote 
Holy shit, is that the same tune that was also in the previous track? Is, 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 is that, is that a theme? There are a couple of small themes in this, yes. Uh, there's, there's... Holy shit, what a fucking revelation! Well, okay. There is a theme that is used in, in some more, uh, melancholy variations, but it gets one happier... Uh, variation. There's a, there's multiple variations on a theme, huh? Wow! It's almost like that's the whole fucking point of having a theme. <laughs> Most of the appearances of the acoustic guitar has sort of a, a a different theme, so there are even multiple ones. We're we're doing building blocks here. I didn't love this compared to other Carter Burwell scores. I liked you know stuff like Carol and Being John Malkovich a lot more than this. I thought this score had a lot of tracks that were sort of slow and plodding and didn't go anywhere. Well, I don't think this is the sort of score that's, again, really made to be on CD or or to be listened to separately. That's possible. Uh, because the, the entire score on the Academy promo that was put out during award season is about 30 minutes long for, you know, a feature-length film. It's a lot of... Short tracks, kind of sparsely spotted in the film. Pretty ambient a lot of the time. Yeah. A lot of uh, mood setting. I mean, there are a couple of tracks that have the theme, and it's... I, I like the theme, and I like the way he uses it in a few tracks, but it's not really there enough for my taste. And again, there's very little music on this CD. I don't know if music is just really sparse in the movie, or if they just didn't release much of it, but... It, it, it's it gotta be. If there was more in the movie, it would have been on the Academy promo. Probably, yeah. Uh, overall, I found it kind of compelling, if unremarkable. I th- Like I said, I think this is subpar for a Burwell score, but I mean, compared to the other two we've talked about, it has melodies. Yes, it has melodies. I shouldn't do that to Phantom Thread. Phantom Thread has melodies. Phantom Thread is a melodic score. It's just not to my tastes. And it doesn't use its theme enough. Would you like to move on to something that's even more melodic and even more thematic? Do you realize how entirely inverted this entire thing is? Go on. Let's move on to The Shape of Water by Alexandre Desplat. is wrong with the universe where the only score with like a really well-developed highly used oft-repeated theme is the fucking Desplat score? Desplat is a very tuneful composer. Don't give me that look. (laughs) 
I mean, I guess in a way, but I mean, he doesn't do anything. The spot scores have always been sort of aimless and empty. I mean, there's a reason I was so glad when he bailed on Star Wars at the last minute. Oh, goodness. But we are in some sort of weird, bizarre world because the Desplat score is the fully bodied, like, what a score is supposed to freaking be of the bunch. When I first heard this score, my first impression was that it was quite pleasant. I rather liked the main theme, and I was sure that you would hate it. Really? Yes. Why did you think I would hate it? Just because it's Desplat? Um, it is very Desplat. Really? It is very, very Desplat in terms of all of the... It just sounds so French. That's my note, actually. That's my Scott's featured note from this score. Yeah. Is that this movie is about torturing and then fucking a fish monster, but the score makes it sound like a quirky French comedy. With the accordion and the whistling, it is very, very French. In a way that, as music to listen to, I find quite delightful. I... I like this score. I think the theme is fine, and it's used a lot, and it's used in different ways. I think this is a good score, but I just got sick of it after a while. Which I realize is ironic, since I criticize all these other scores for only putting out 20 minutes of music or 30 minutes of music, but, like, near toward the end of this CD, I'm just like, okay, I've heard this enough now. I'm done. I didn't like it that much. The main theme for uh, the protagonist, Eliza, has this floating, kind of fluttering, reaching quality that works great for the montages toward the beginning of the movie of her getting up and making her breakfast and going to work and all that. One of the things that might detract from the listening experience of the score uh, might be that once it gets into the meat of the plot about the torture and escape of the fish man, that sort of fluttering, floating theme isn't as appropriate, and so that theme kind of disappears for a long portion of the film, and a long portion of the CD. So, that kind of has large blocks, where there's a block of one mood, and then a longer block of a more tense, dramatic mood, and then when that theme comes back at the end, it's it's kind of a breath of fresh air, but maybe you go a little too long without hearing it. Isn't that theme more of a combination, though? Because, like, Eliza has a motif associated with her, and then the fish monster has a motif associated with him, and the main theme of the movie is sort of a combination of the two, which I really appreciated. Like, track five, it was the first time I took note of the sort of, the motif associated with the fish monster. Yes. And it's sort of, I like that the main theme... I mean, it sounds good as a theme on its own, but I like that it's sort of constructed out of these two other parts of the two main characters. Yeah, well, well, that gives... That's a very good use of themes! Yes, again, that gives you the opportunity to kind of combine things or separate things or maybe play them off each other at different times. 
I think it's interesting how uh, sometimes in a score, one section of the orchestra will be kind of beefed up more than usual to highlight like a particular sound. Like there are examples I can think of where there's a larger than usual brass section, or sometimes a composer will have extra pianos wheeled into the recording studio to make sure that that sound really comes through in the mix. The Shape of Water has a somewhat unique sound, not only because of the whistling and the accordion and all that, but also it has a very large flute section. Yeah. Lots of flutes in this one. One thing about this score is that they never really... It's all sort of whimsical and flighty, and and, and it never really... I mean, there's some darker stuff, like with the torturing, but even when they escape from the facility and steal the fish monster, there's no, like, action cues in there. There's, like, some tension. It's all... There's uh, some suspense music, but there's no, like... I mean, even when they're, like, making their getaway drive and they're crashing into stuff, and when... Michael Shannon is beating the shit out of people. There, there's no action cues in this score. It's all either, like, dark and foreboding or the light fancy stuff. That escape sequence in particular was one time where I really picked up the beefed-up flutes kind of fluttering in the, in the background and in the foreground at, at certain points, which is a very displaw approach to an action scene, I think. <laughs> And, uh, you know, it's 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 kind of amazing how he keeps doing, you know, mainstream Hollywood movies, even the ones about the fish monster, and really retains his own style. You know, that's a little, that's a little unique. I don't know. Maybe I'm just not up on his style. I know I've listened to several of his scores, but I couldn't tell you word one about any of them, except I didn't like them. Maybe as we move on with other older years, we'll get into that. My favorite Desplat score is probably the Twilight movie he did. I think that has the strongest theme of any of his scores that I've heard. And a really, really good theme, too. But that's a bit of a divergence. Oh, he did Divergent? (laughs) I know, that was Joseph Trapanese. Uh, (laughs) I can't believe you know that off the top of your head. You know what else I know off the top of my head? Junkie XL did the first one. Joseph Trapanese did the further sequels of Divergent. Oh, really? Yes. Junkie XL, not someone I think we'll be talking about as an Oscar nominee. Although you never know, Trent Reznor has one of these things. Would you like to move on, Scott? Well, is there anything to move on to? Are we even talking about... Uh, I'm trying not to spoil the name of the other movie. I don't know why. Our final nominee for the Academy Award from the year of 2017 is Star Wars The Last Jedi by Johnny Johnny John John Williams. our listeners have been waiting to hear what we think about this one. Have they? Obviously, we've discussed this at some length, twice. 
So I, I think for the large, large majority of any of our comments on The Last Jedi score, listeners can check out the uh, final segments in our two Last Jedi exclusive podcasts that we did. Is there anything you would like to add to that upon all of these months of reflection? Well, I think everyone knows pretty much what we think of The Last Jedi. You weren't a fan. I acknowledged many of its faults, but I still liked it a lot. It doesn't have the long tracks that you really want from a Williams Star Wars score. Everything is sort of chopped up too much, but it's still, you know, it's still a Williams Star Wars score. I don't know. The temp tracking still kills me. People can hear that on our other episodes about it. (laughs) So, because we've waited so long to actually do this, we already know who won! Was it Williams? Uh, No. Uh, It was indeed Mr. Desplat, for Mr. Shape of Mr. Water. I can't even object to that. No, I have no objection to it. I mean, given this slate of nominees, I probably liked Last Jedi the most out of any of these, but... I mean, I can sort of understand why they wouldn't give the award to the eighth Star Wars movie, considering all the good parts of that score are all themes from the previous seven movies. Well, from four of the previous seven, anyway. Time was it wouldn't have been nominated because of that. (laughs) What what is this world coming to when they give Desplat an Academy Award? And I'm like, yeah, that was probably the best score. 2018's a weird time to be alive. (laughs) And that, dear listeners, is our coverage of the Academy Award nominees and the winner uh, for Best Score of 2017. But do not go away, because after our break, we will come back and talk about some of the other scores from 2017 that we actually liked. Can we really find something better than Dunkirk? You know, it's hard, but we've spent all this time scouring the archives, and we might have come up with a couple things. Let's see, after this. consideration paid for by the following. Place Me Nation is Justin Rosero and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaceMeNation.com. And we now offer them to you on two great feeds. On the PlaceMeNation wrestling feed, we bring you the mothership, the place to be podcast, main event, survey says, wrestling war zone, a Monday Night Wars podcast retrospective, no holds barred, Jeff learns wrestling in our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows. On top of that, we're also dipping into the vault, re-releasing the entire catalog of where the big boys play for your enjoyment. In addition to these full-length shows, we also deliver special network pod blasts on topics old and new. 
The Place to Be Nation pop feed is loaded with great content, offering such tremendous shows covering the land of pop culture, such as Geek and Sassy, Talk and Pop, the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, Sunday Groove, PTB in Play, Freak Out Drive-In, Songs with Friends, Looking Forward, Looking Back, and Lucha Undead, as well as a veritable podcast heaven for comics fans with the hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Conversation Comics, DC Post-Crisis Management, Marvel Age, and Marvel Age Masterclass, plus weekly pod blasts that cover the gamut of comic topics. The feed is also filled with insightful sports content, including the NBA team, This Week in the NFL, and more. And you can find all these current shows plus archives of our past podcasts, including The Kevin Kelly Show, as well by subscribing to both feeds on iTunes. And while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All these shows plus others available at PlayStation.com. We cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, in-depth stretch projects, and more. Be sure to support our site by using PlayStation.com forward slash Amazon while doing your online shopping. And download our free PTB Vintage Vault refresh ebooks via the links on our site. We also want to thank our friends at Boneheads Wing Bar, ProWrestlingOnly.com, and TheHistoryOfWrestling.com. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlayStation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Talking about some of the scores from 2017 films that were not nominated for the Academy Award, but had music that actually appealed to us more than a lot of the nominees did. (laughs) At least three of them. Sure. Uh, Scott, do you have something that you want to mention? Well, at the risk of living up to my own hype, I think I would have to start with the Giacchino Spider-Man. Yes, your favorite composer working today and mine. I mean, I never listened to the two, whatever the hell that Spider-Man series was called, Amazing Spider-Man. Yeah. I never listened to those two, so I don't know if they were any good. The first Amazing was done by James Horner and had a really good theme. The second one was done by Hans Zimmer, so let's not. But I mean, compared to the rest of the Marvel movies, which are just very hit and miss, depending on whether or not Brian Tyler is scoring them... (laughs) This score, it's not the best of Giacchino, but it's still so much more listenable than almost anything by anyone else. 
It's got several themes in it. There's a Spider-Man theme, there's a Vulture theme, there's other stuff floating around. It's just so... The opening track where he does the Spider-Man, Spider-Man orchestration over the, like, opening Marvel logo. And I never noticed this throughout the entire movie, but at the very end of the movie, he, like, delays one note from his theme, and all of a sudden it's the old Spider-Man theme. And I never noticed that similarity throughout the entire movie until he just, like, transposed one note at the end, and then bang, there it is, right in your face. And then you go back and listen to the whole score, and it's always threatening to go into the Spider-Man cartoon theme. Yes, and you don't even notice it. It's so good. Yeah, the MCU scores, I've talked about on, on another podcast before, have been ridiculously hit and miss. Often ridiculously miss. <laughs> it seems that whenever they're going to start to write the ship, that it starts to get wobbly again. Like, they got Brian Tyler in, and he did a bunch of the Phase 2 scores, but then he pissed off the Mucky New Mucks at Marvel and got booted from the film series. How did that happen? Okay. I can only attest to rumors and things that I read on the internet, but I think that they weren't very happy that Tyler wasn't devoting quite as much of his time to the Age of Ultron writing and scoring sessions as he could have because he was also doing that year's Fast and the Furious movie at the time. And they, they felt that they should take precedence in his schedule. And so they... Did they back their feelings up with a larger contract? They backed their feelings <laughs> up by hiring Danny Elfman to score half the movie. <laughs> and then not hiring Brian Tyler again. And then during Phase 3, they bring in Michael Giacchino, who does Doctor Strange. A fantastic main theme for Doctor Strange. A kind of hit-and-miss full score, but that theme is amazing. The reason that score was hit-and-miss for me is because the theme wasn't used nearly enough. In my opinion. I've only ever listened to that once, but at the time it felt like kind of similar to Star Trek Beyond. Not so much the theme, but most of the rest of the score. I can... Yes. Okay. I can I can see that because... Okay. I love Michael Giacchino, right? You love Michael Giacchino. We love a lot of his music. We love a lot of his themes. We love a lot of his scores. In recent years... In the last several years, a lot of his action music in particular has seemed extremely samey to me. Yeah. That's the main reason why I've never been able to get into his Planet of the Apes scores, even though there are some who love them. But it's a rare Chikino action score where the action music, as opposed to the themes or other aspects of the scores, are the main driving element of it for me. Spider-Man, though, I think, does a great job handling all of the different elements of the movie. Like, in a way that none of the other Spider-Man films did, it actually captures the sense that he's a kid. You know? Yeah, there's a lot of that. It's a lot more... There's a lot of, like, lighthearted stuff in the early school scenes. Yeah, a lot of the early tracks with the, you know, pizzicato strings under under the main Spider-Man theme, and it feels like a good theme for teenage kid Peter Parker, and then it blossoms into this big heroic theme for Spider-Man. Exactly, because they don't just emphasize <laughs> they his, don't like, use, They don't use the theme in uh, Spider-Man Homecoming 1, Spider-Man Homecoming 2. No, but they don't! 
they don't use those strings to emphasize his childlike, supposed childlike innocence and, you know, the good times of just lolling around high school and then switch to a whole different style when they switch to the more boldly heroic scenes. They're playing the same theme in both of those instances. Yeah. That's what ties it together. That's what makes it more interesting. Here's this theme that represents this character, and here it is expressing this part of him, and here it is expressing this part of him, but it's the same basic melody if you get down to it. That's what makes it interesting to listen to. I could listen to anything in, like, you know, fun, high-pitched strings of some random tune. What makes it interesting is I'm listening to this bold, heroic tune, except it sounds fun and lighthearted. Or the first time you listen to it, or when you're watching the movie, it's this fun, lighthearted theme that then becomes... Yeah, this fun, lighthearted theme. You're like, well, that doesn't sound like a superhero theme. And then, he, and then you get to, like, 40 minutes later, and you're like, holy fuck, that does sound like a superhero theme. I, I was so glad when they officially announced that he's coming back for the new Spider-Man as well. Well, after doing Doctor Strange and Spider-Man, I was disappointed he didn't do, like, the entire rest of the MCU. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like, he could have only improved Infinity War. Yes, I was just going to say, when we, um... I mean, I understand what they did with Black Panther. What they did with Black Panther was perfect, but G. Kino could have only improved Infinity War. Yes, absolutely. I dare say we won't be talking about Infinity War when we do 2018 scores as a hidden gem, non-nominated score that I loved anyway, because... <laughs> oh, well. That's like I say, right? That whenever it seems like they're really going to write the ship, it just falls apart. And the, and the problem, as is observed by many, many people, is the complete lack of thematic continuity. Well, they do carry over themes, they just don't, like, emphasize them or use them. Like, that Avengers fanfare from the first Avengers movie is all over the place, but it's just sort of, like, pasted in. It's not used, it's not developed, it's not used in different aspects, it's not used in different ways. It's just sort of pasted in as a, as a fanfare wherever they want to have a fanfare. And that's the extent of its use. That is the only theme that they've managed to use across MCU films. Well, the Captain America theme has been in many of them. It was... it's, been, it's, it's been in a few of them, yeah, you're right, you're right. But the main Avengers theme is the only one that's really been used kind of the way that I wish all of them were used. Well, I don't think the Avengers theme has been used nearly enough, or well enough. Fair. But, you know, when they brought Sylvester back for Infinity War, he still used the Avengers theme because he wrote it. Yeah, that was... You played me once some, like, renditions of that Avengers fanfare from the Age of Ultron soundtrack. Wow, that was some weird shit. Yeah, Danny Elfman did a takeoff on that that was really fun and really good, but it, it's a big takeoff from the Alan Silvestri version. That, like, bold, blaring, declarative fanfare reworked as, like, some sort of, like, string background element. I mean, ideally, it sounds like the kind of thing I would want them to do, like, use this theme in different ways in different places, but that did not work. That sounded like someone that did not at all understand what that theme was supposed to do, or well, how it was supposed to be used. Well, the arrangement over the end credits for Ultron, I think, was really good. Otherwise, a little hit and miss. Fair. So, ultimately, going back to Spider-Man, I was, I was really happy to see that a lot of the action music, in particular, 
It wasn't as samey as it's been in some Giacchino scores over the last five to ten years, maybe. In part because he's able to play off the vulture theme a lot to kind of give it its own personality mm-hmm. and play the vulture theme off of the Spider-Man theme again, what you're talking about with the possibilities. I, I think that was really well done, and I'm re- I was really, really glad to see Giacchino make such a splash in the MCU, and I, I, I hope... I hope he gets to do more of it. Absolutely. They need someone to do something with that. Because, I mean, there are MCU movies that don't have terrible scores, but that is just such a golden opportunity to tie everything together. Yeah, you'd think. It's such an amazing opportunity if you establish these things just like they do with the characters and the plot lines. You establish so many different things in the individual characters, individual movies, and then bring them all together and weave everything together. They do a fantastic job doing that with the characters and the plot lines and everything in in the big team-up movies, and yet the music is just neglected. Anywho, let's talk about another superhero movie, actually. What did you think of Wonder Woman? I was very surprised how much I liked Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman is a really good score. Wonder Woman, of course, being written by Rupert Gregson Williams. Wonder Woman is a really good score. The worst part of Wonder Woman is the blaring electric cello theme they had to carry over from Batman v Stupid Man. He tried so hard to make that work. Like I'll throw, I'll I'll throw something under us when I'm editing the uh, No Man's Land track. I think has a good example of just the harsh transition where it goes from Gregson Williams's like really solid superhero music, and then he has to transition into this blaring, screechy electric cello thing. I'll like throw that under us and fade it up right about here. just such an awkward transition between those two styles like I almost wish they would have dumped the theme overboard like they do in all the MCU movies you know what the thing of it is though Rupert Gregson Williams also has his own Wonder Woman theme for this movie that he uses several times yes he really only brings out the cello in the action scenes where you it, would, it almost works it, it works as like an action like 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 a strident actiony underscore, but it just it doesn't work with the rest of his score. I mean, maybe he could have tried to incorporate that theme better. Like you know, play it on a clarinet in other scenes, play it on the string section, like the real strings. 
You know, play it in a mellow version, play it in a sad version, try to work with it some. Like, the only time it shows up is that screechy, blaring electric cello rendition, and it just doesn't fit with any way with the rest of the score. Well, we found out in the Justice League score what it sounds like when you play it on a trumpet. Really? Oh, you don't remember that? No. I oh, listened man. to Justice League. It wasn't very good. No, it wasn't. That score was such a tease. That score was such a mashup of, like... Do we want to talk? Do we want to analyze the Justice League score? Let's get back into Wonder Woman. I'm, I'm just naming it as an example of using the Wonder Woman theme orchestrally, which I think was a, a, a valuable thing to do as an experiment, but it's kind of an edge case, ultimately. <laughs> There's another point in the Wonder Woman score at the end of the track History Lesson where he starts to tease the backbeat for the electric cello theme, which I thought was just a really, really good example of how hard he tries to make it work. <laughs> you know, I'm sure he's very talented and he's trying very hard. Ultimately, I don't think it really works. Well, the whole rest of the score is great. It's just trying to carry over that theme and that performance of that theme. It just doesn't fit. Yeah, when listening to the rest of the score, it reminds me a little bit of what one of Hans Zimmer's disciples might have done for this movie around the early 2000s. And we should mention that Rupert Gregson Williams got this job because he is, you know, someone who works with and for Hans Zimmer, which Zimmer's done for, God, dozens of composers. Why are so many of the Zimmer offshoots so much better than him? Like, the Zimmer offshoots, some of them are kind of blah, and some of them turn out to be really good. Some of them turn out to be John Powell. John Powell? Really? Yeah. Like, like how do you get Gregson Williams, who does this score, and John Powell, and, like, Ramin Jawadi? And people like that falling off the Zimmer tree, doing so many interesting, creative things. Even Steve Jablonski's Transformer stuff, that Transformers 1 score is still very highly underrated in my eyes. Uh, the sequels I can take or leave, that he doesn't really do anything with it. But those themes in the Transformers 1 score, all of these Zimmer offshoots do such interesting things. And Zimmer is doing Dunkirk! Is that the reason why they're, like, Zimmer sprouts and not still working for Zimmer? Because one day they came into the office and they said, Hey boss, what if we used all these techniques and these electronic instruments, but we used them to play music? And Zimmer says, GET OUT! Yes, it's that meme with the guy getting dumped out the window of the skyscraper. Um, I don't think it's quite like that. <laughs> All, all of the Zimmer kinder really write quite a lot of his scores as it is. You wouldn't know it. I don't know. There have been times when I've read about a new Zimmer score, and there have been like a couple of tracks or a couple of themes or a couple of pieces that people have really liked, and then it's revealed that, oh, that was actually a contribution by Jeff Zanelli who works with Zimmer, or that was John Powell co-wrote several scores with Zimmer, or, or that, that was one of these other composers who works with and for Zimmer. So, it, it's very much a melange. And, I mean, I don't want to rehash Dunkirk again, but after all the meetings with Chris Nolan where he lays out the way that he wants the score to function in the film, I don't think anyone is going to come up and say, you know what, this needs power anthems. But Wonder Woman could use a power anthem, and she got one. 
Now, of course, that apparently Hans Zimmer himself is taking the reins back for Wonder Woman 2, I'm not quite sure how that's going to go. I thought he retired from superhero movies. Yeah, so did he. Oh, fuck me. Oh, you never heard about that? No. Oh, yeah. Came out over the summer, I think, that he's doing Wonder Woman 84. Why? Why do they hire him to ruin these films? (laughs) We're really staking our position here. (laughs) Warner Brothers has made, like, ten movies that they thought would be part of their DC cinematic universe. Only one of them has been any fucking good. You know what that movie had that was good about it? It didn't have fucking Hans Zimmer! On that note, let's move on to a score by another of the Zimmerkinder. Uh, You mentioned Raman Jawadi a few minutes ago, and I believe you quite liked uh, his score for The Mountain Between Us. It's not, like, one of my favorite things, but, like, it's not the style of score that I really love. It, 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 it is a, a dramatic film. It's not, you know, an action thriller or superhero or any of that, which would tend to lend itself to the scores that you prefer. But it has some really interesting stuff in it. Like, there's a couple of tracks in there that remind me a lot of Lion from the previous year, except, like, good and, and there's, there's some interesting... There's like a theme in there that sort of reminds me of an orchestral version of the Johnny Cash rendition of Hurt, which I found interesting. I was quite taken... I listened to the CD for the score on, on your recommendation, and I was quite taken by this really elegant piano and string theme in the opening track yeah. that sounds completely unlike anything I would expect from Raman Jawadi. Exactly! I mean, it's not, like, the most bombastic, awesome score in the world, but of this sort of anodyne, sonic wallpaper that a lot of these directors seem to want, and that a lot of these composers are, like, turning up to 11 or 12, this is, like, the best possible version of that, with some really interesting melodies and themes woven into it, but still, like, not really enough that makes you listen to the music rather than watching the movie as if those are two entirely separate things you could be doing and they're not supposed to work hand-in-hand. I found it to be a very interesting score to listen to. Yeah, I was quite taken with uh, the beginning and the end of it. The middle of the album, at least, I think, uh, sagged a bit. Yeah, a little. But yeah, There's not as much interesting stuff in there as just sort of stuff... Right, but that opening and closing pieces I thought were were very nice, very good. 
you know, it, when I think of Raman Jawadi, I think of uh, Pacific Rim and other, you know, action movies. Although I've heard on the internet, thank you, Bill Curtis, for the internet, that uh, he's done some really good work on Game of Thrones. So maybe he's, you know, gotten to flex some different genres there, too. Or some different moods, at least. Well, Game of Thrones is, you know... Game of Thrones is not exactly Phantom Thread. Right. It's... it's if well, he does, like, really loud, bombastic, action-y music, I think that would fit in on a lot of Game of Thrones. Probably. At times. I've never watched Game of Thrones. From the internet, I get the impression that a lot of episodes involve a naked woman attacking cities with dragons. Hashtag goals. And, you know, the composer of Pacific Rim could score that. But I'm really surprised to hear him do something like This Mountain Between Us. That's a very different style. A, 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 little, a little surprising for a uh, Kate Winslet drama. Uh, what's another score that you would like to single out from 2017? Well, if you want to go a completely opposite direction from The Mountain Between Us, we can talk about Brian Tyler and his score to Power Rangers. seen the Power Rangers movie? No. I am old enough that I always looked down on the Power Rangers as a cheap live-action Voltron knockoff, and so I had never had any interest in watching anything associated with it. But God, this score is good! It's exciting! The theme is really good, and he also uses the old TV theme in a few places, and that sounds really good. Like the best possible version of trying to orchestrate that thing. Brian Tyler... We mentioned him earlier because he did several MCU movies before he apparently pissed them off by trying to have too many themes or something. I don't even remember why you said he pissed them off, but... Well, you can go back and listen to the episode. Yeah, we can go back and listen. Brian Tyler, while I was listening to this, it occurred to me, Brian Tyler is like the modern-day James Horner. Because there's stuff in this Power Rangers score that sort of reminds me of his old Children of Dune score. And there's stuff in here that reminds me of his Thor 2 score, which also reminded me of his Children of Dune score. And he did the Turtles movie, the Michael Bay Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, and that score reminded me a lot of Thor 2 and the old Children of Dune stuff. Brian Tyler is like James Horner in that all of his scores sort of sound like each other in ways, but they're all really good. My favorite Brian Tyler scores are the ones where he's rewriting Children of Dune. Absolutely. You could say that about all of them. 
There are ones where he doesn't. He got away from it for a few years, and uh, the quality took a dip. The only Brian Tyler score I ever listened to that I really didn't like was Timeline. Which Timeline I haven't was... listened to in like ten years. Maybe I should go back and give it a listen. Timeline was totally Children of Dune, though. Was it? Yes. I don't remember it that way. Like I said, maybe I should go back and give it a re-listen. Timeline has has the main theme from Children of Dune and a Jerry Goldsmith love theme. Well, that may be where it falls down for me. Uh, maybe. But this Power Rangers score was just really exciting and interesting. I was just going to say, when you started playing excerpts of it for me, I was really taken by the energy of it, uh, the instrumentation. I think the kind of classic-sounding synth instrumentation that Tyler uses is really, really compelling. Uh, reminds me a lot of Thor 3 by Mark Mothersbaugh and uh, Tron Legacy, which was a fantastic score. Well, Thor 3 has a lot of Tyler's Thor 2 theme in it. You know, at times the theme threatens to turn into the Thor 2 theme, but it keeps not. Uh, that that was my prevailing impression listening to that score. Plus the uh, sort of synthwave instrumentation as well. This was a big surprise to me, because like I said, I had no interest in anything Power Rangers, but... Like, I don't know how this worked in the movie. I'm assuming it would have worked pretty good, because, I mean... I mean, what do the Power Rangers do? They fight giant robots. So, you'd think this kind of, like, hyped-up, energetic music would work well for that kind of thing. But I just really love listening to this score. Yeah, it's really fun. I want to give a shout-out to one score from 2017 that wasn't for kind of a mainstream Hollywood movie as much. I want to just mention Tokyo Ghoul by Don Davis. so strange to me how Don Davis pretty much disappeared from film scoring for over ten years after the Matrix movies and a couple projects he did after that. He did the Marine. Did that, he? That's how his career went after the Matrix. Uh, he is, has not been seen that much and suddenly he came back doing this uh, Tokyo Ghoul film which, while the entire score isn't exactly a barn burner, I thought the main theme from that, which is used at, at several points, is just a killer piece. The main theme reminded me a lot of the Terminator theme. Like, the second phrase of each is sort of similar to me. I suppose I can see that. You know, a lot of things remind me of the Terminator theme for some reason. <laughs> it's because everybody's trying to rip off Brad Fidel. 
Oh, of of course. You know, he's the modern day John Williams. I would say that John Williams is the modern day John Williams, but I listened to the post, and he's not. Well, I mean, he managed to turn it on for the two Star Wars movies, but you're obviously going to get a much different score for a Spielberg drama than you are for a Star Wars movie. The same way that even while he was doing Star Wars movies and Indiana Jones movies, you know, when he did something like The Accidental Tourist, or when he did another, you know, drama film, even in the 80s, it's a much, much different feeling that he's working with. I don't know, his prequel scores sounded basically just like all his other dreck from that era. (laughs) Let's not get into that, though. There's a lot about this score that sounds just like a Don Davis score to me. Yeah, a lot of a lot of the brass layering is very Davis. A lot of like bold fanfares that don't really go anywhere but accentuate a moment a lot like he did in the Matrix movies. It sounds very Don Davis to me. And like you said, the first track has that interesting theme and then it doesn't really show up a lot in the rest of the score. Plus, we've talked about this before, there's 60 minutes of music on this CD and 28 tracks, so a lot of them don't really have time to do anything much. Well, that is a thing with with a lot of scores, yeah. Like you said, I haven't heard a Don Davis score probably since The Matrix. And so I was struck how much it reminded me of The Matrix, just structurally. Mm. I just just hope that he winds up getting more assignments, because he's someone... Again, who has kind of his own voice. He's not, you know, a Zimmerling. (laughs) So many of the Zimmerlings are so much better, though. As discussed. (laughs) You want to know what I thought was interesting and different? What did you think was interesting and different? And I listened to this because I saw it listed somewhere, like, don't let the shittiness of the movie stop you from listening to it. And so I listened to it, and so I'll say don't let the shittiness of the movie stop you from listening to it. I greatly enjoyed King Arthur Legend of the Sword by Daniel Pemberton. admit it is distinctive now this movie also doesn't have a theme and it sort of doesn't have melodies either it's very rhythmically based it's not melodically based like it's it's structured around rhythms it's not structured around tunes or melodies but it it works somehow Because it's got a really good beat, and the sounds are really interesting. It's not just instruments, it's like banging on stuff, it's like breathing heavily into the mic in rhythm. 
It's, it's very unusual instrumentation, very interesting rhythms that they're building. And so somehow it works. Like I said, there's not really a melody to speak of, but it's not entirely a-melodic. No. And every track you listen to, you want to bob your head. I think Pemberton wound up using a lot of old instruments, which you might do in, in a film like this to try to evoke the period that it takes place in, but he's using them in a way that's aggressively, aggressively modern. And the breath work, it's ridiculous that it works as well as it does. Yeah, it absolutely is. I'm, I was listening to it thinking it's ridiculous that I'm enjoying this as much as I am. Exactly, like if you had told me ahead of time, yeah, the main rhythmic bass for this track is a guy breathing really hard. I, you know, I would have gone into it thinking, this, this is going to be garbage, but it's really fun. Yeah. It works. It's a lot of fun. It's It's... Like I said, give it a listen, give it a shot. It's really interesting. It's 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 a lot of fun to listen to. Some of the tracks go on a little long. Like when you don't have a tune to follow, it the just repeating rhythm can get tired after a while. So like some of these tracks would have been better to be a little bit shorter, but well, as often happens with some scores nowadays, uh, the CD edition is about 76 minutes, but the digital edition, because there's no limitation on how long your album is on digital retailers, is about 90 minutes, which might be an overdose. I don't know. I think it's definitely worth a, worth a listen. It's, like I said, it's a lot of fun. It's very innovative, I thought. Just yeah. the, the way they make the sounds and the way they use the rhythms. I mean, let's be honest. In the future, I'm probably going to use this as a cudgel against other scores. Even if you insist on not having anything that can be called music, you could still do something good and fun like Daniel Pemberton in King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. Yeah, Pemberton is a, is a composer who uh, has been up and coming for several years, but not really caught my ear yet. So this was very interesting. Very interesting. On that note, I think we'll close out our look at the scores of 2017 and move on to other years, other scores, other amelodic dreck. Do they have to keep nominating amelodic dreck? Well, we'll see, won't we? Thank you for being with me. Thank you, listeners, for being with us. We will see you next time. <laughs>